Hello and welcome to your politics show here on Radio Verum 92.6 FM. That is the show where each week we talk to one of your local MPs to get the answers to your questions. Today we are talking to Bim Afalami, the local MP for Harpenden and Hitchin, and he talks through all your issues. So, Bim, the biggest discussion at the moment continues to be Partygate. It's the thing that we've had the most messages about this month. Your message on this is that the Prime Minister needs to stay. But why is it okay for a leader who has broken the law, the laws which he has created, to continue in office? Um, and I love doing these, Jason, but I'm not sure, actually, it is the most important thing affecting the country right now. May be popular, may not be a popular thing to say, but I happen to think the most important thing facing the country right now are people who literally are worried about whether they're going to have a job. There are people worried about whether they can afford to heat their homes, uh, and you know the cost of ordinary things is going up very, very quickly all over the world. Frankly, I think that's way more important. We will talk about that, I suspect, later. On this very precise point, getting rid of an elected prime minister mid-term is a very, very, very big thing to do. This is not just something you do because somebody has made a mistake, even a big mistake, actually. What you've got to do is say, what are you doing to address the mistake? How are we gonna make sure you don't see those things again? And what are you actually doing for the country? It's my judgment that it is not now a priority of the country to now get rid of a prime minister because they made this particular error of judgment, which they've already apologised for. By all means, if people say we should get rid of the prime minister because they don't like his approach to this or that, or because of our policies or whatever, that's democracy. But they should say that. What they shouldn't do is say, right, um, I don't like the prime minister because of Brexit or the policy, the Conservative Party on X or Y or whatever, but I'm now going to try and get rid of him midterm because of this issue. I think that's a mistake. I think it's wrong. And the bar to get rid of a prime minister midterm should be very high. Having said all of that, I really do understand why people feel absolutely furious about this, as indeed I did when I heard about it, because you know, this isn't what I came into politics to do, to talk about this stuff, which is ultimately not improving uh, the welfare of people in this country. It's ultimately a sort of political scandal, but it, it is not it is not improving the lot of ordinary people up and down this country, and that's what I came politics to do. I think a, a lot of people have heard similar arguments about this issue of to, to get rid of the Prime Minister midterm is a big overhaul, and uh, other people have suggested about the crisis in Ukraine or, or what is going on with the cost of living crisis as well. But maybe, Bim, you could explain what the, the Conservative Party thinking, or, or maybe just your own thinking. What is the difference then of getting rid of Theresa May as Prime Minister, arguably a more important crux in British history during Brexit negotiations, which Boris Johnson is getting, you know, uh, the, the benefit of the doubt in this situation from the party? Well, there's a very big difference. And, and for what it's worth, by the way, I supported Theresa May. That's beside the point. The reason why the party had to get rid of Theresa is because there was no political way of us getting our way out of what was a political dispute that was at stalemate because there was no majority that she had lost us. That core political arithmetic 
is is what um, she ultimately had to pay the price for. Because in a parliamentary system, you cannot govern if you do not have a majority. And Theresa May had lost us the majority. Um, and that's why she, she had to leave. And therefore, we had to change the leader. And we had to have a new approach. And we had to go into an election with a new leader. And that's what we did. I mean, I guess this really nicely links to the next question, which is all about the local elections. Uh, you have previously said that the wider Conservative Party needs to build back and wing back the trust lost as a result of Partygate. The results of the elections have seen a huge loss of council seats to Liberal Democrats and Labour. Where does the party go from here? And as you've spoken there, Theresa May almost lost the mandate from the country there. Does that not worry you at all? Of course, losing local elections worries me because they're very good councillors who are no longer able to be good councillors. And I know as a member of parliament, it's much easier for you to work with good conservative councillors than opposition councillors who quite often, though not always, um, see their job as sort of political rather than actually doing the job. So when they have a conservative MP. So um, of course it matters. I think that when I've looked and I did any questions last the day of the, the the day after local elections, and I said this then, which is when you look at history, and as a keen historian I do, in the midterm, governments get quite big gyrations in votes at local elections. Tony Blair had some terrible sets of local elections. William Hague won every single set of local elections between 1997 and 2001. It didn't do us very much good. So, and I'm not saying by the way that, that, that history always repeats itself. I'm just making the point that sometimes voters choose to take out their frustration in local elections. And that doesn't necessarily tell you about what will happen at a general election, but at the same time, it can also tell you the indication of where people are trending and what they do. And therefore you have to, it gives you a good indication of where you need to focus your efforts and the people you need to appeal to. It's clear that there were particular parts of the country where we did particularly poorly. We did particularly poorly as a Conservative Party in very, very um, uh, reasonably affluent um, towns, in particular in the southeast uh, and the eastern region, and you know, and bits up north, but. There was a particular very affluent, quite urban, liberal-minded um, areas that went against the party. It happened a lot less so in villages and in less well-off places. Uh, so we have to think about that. We have to. We have to look at that. Does it cause you any concern for your own seat, Bim? I mean, boundary changes are very big. So frankly, my own seat no longer will exist in the way that it, it does today. So um, it's not. It's not. You know, that in and of itself is, is, is not quite the same thing. But I do think more broadly, um, uh, the, 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 the Conservative Party needs to obviously show people all over the country that we're working for them, and that includes our heartlands in the southeast. Well, this brings us on to the, the fact that you've mentioned this earlier as well the cost of living crisis all through Partygate. As you have mentioned, the government has called for attention on other, as you said, more important issues. And the cost of living crisis was polled as the second most important issue in some polls at the local elections. However, on Sunday on the Andrew Neil show, we saw your fellow Conservative MP Jacob Rees-Mogg struggle to answer how the government is going to give 
any help to those in the most need when the economy is stagnating and inflation is at 10 percent i mean what assurances can you give to your constituents that something will be done bim yes of course something must be done look um it's really important that people understand why this is happening because that will also contextualize and explain why the government does not completely control this this is happening the rise in prices that you're seeing across almost everything is happening for two reasons the first is the war in ukraine has made oil and gas particularly expensive the second is that there have been supply chain problems, particularly in China, who are still going in and out of lockdowns. They're pursuing a sort of mad zero COVID policy compared to every other country in the world, it appears, which accepts that COVID has you know, become something that's endemic in the population. So when you have a supply problem uh, and you have energy costs going up, and I suppose there's a third point, which is over the last 12 years, 13 years, quantitative easing, which has hugely increased the money supply in the world economy. These are all very global problems. And global problems can only, in part, be, be solved domestically. It's really important people understand. However, what the government can do is it can shield the most needy from some of the worst excesses of that. And we've tried to do that. We spent 22 billion doing that on things like council tax rebate, on things like um, uh, giving people an advance on their energy bills, £200, on things like raising the threshold where you pay any tax on national insurance to £12,570, uh, which is coming in from the 1st of July. Uh, so we have spent £22 billion doing that. Now, it's a very reasonable thing for people to say, you need to spend more, you need to do more. And by the way, that's exactly what we're looking at doing. But it's also important that when you do that, you don't make the inflation problem even worse than where it is today. Because if we were to just, for example, the government give everybody, and I'm not, by the way, suggesting this is under consideration, if the government gave everybody 10,000 pounds to pay for extra stuff, that's fine. You would, in the short term, deal with the cost of living issue. I mean, not only does your debt go up by a huge amount, but you know you would deal with it in the short term. But what happens to that £10,000? People spend that money. And the people that spend that money, that goes directly into the economy. And then what happens to prices once that has happened? Those prices go up. And then the following year, you have to give everybody £20,000 because the prices have now gone up. And so you haven't solved the problem. What you've actually done is made the domestic problem worse. You haven't affected the global issue because the global is very difficult to affect. So what I'm trying to say is, as you design the package of how you help people, you have to bear in mind you do not want to do something that over time, over a period of months, makes the inflation problem, the rising prices, even worse. That's why we're going to be very careful with how we do it. I think some people would ask the question, though, you know, you've mentioned quantitative easing there. Uh, that money goes to uh, lending to, to almost all the cogs of the economy. Will that be cut back then? Because that is one of the oh, yeah. kind of... I mean, I think it's been bonkers. I think we've done far too much of it. I think the Bank of England has been completely um, off the pace on this. I also happen to think the US Federal Reserve has driven this globally, and they've done far too much of it over the last few years. And also, what, I mean, what it has done, and this is a sort of a technical point, but I think it's, you know, the very learned listeners to Radio Verily will understand it. It is that we have 
artificially preserved a sort of low growth economy in the Western world by not allowing the normal business cycle to take place. And if you don't allow the normal business cycle to take place because there's too much cheap debt around, what happens is that capital goes to the wrong businesses sometimes at the wrong times in the wrong quantities. And so your economy doesn't grow quite as effectively as it needs to. So what you need to somehow do is you have to get more towards a normal business cycle, which has a rising bit and then it has a falling back bit. But if you can do that in a smooth way so that people don't get, um, ordinary people don't get too adversely affected, but you allow businesses to grow faster and more effectively and more sustainably, that will grow our economy in a sustainable way financially, which means we can grow fast without getting lots of inflation. But doing all this is very hard. And I can tell you, I was in the United States for a conference a couple of weeks ago, and everybody was talking about this, people who were you know, CEOs of banks, uh, big um, investors, uh, people were talking about this, just saying, how do we, how do we do this? How do we, how do we help the economy? How do we help people without making inflation work? And in the 70s, they struggled, policymakers then struggled with it as well. Let's turn our attention to the Nationality and Borders Act. Uh, it was put through Parliament and especially amongst Radio Verulam listeners, it seems to have caused controversy because there has been a lot of questions sent in about that. One point that has been especially criticised are the plans for asylum seekers to be flown to centres in Rwanda. Uh, many are saying that the rules are illegal due to international yeah. law. Uh, why was this settled on the best response to many issues around asylum seekers in this country? I think people have slightly, you know, got their niggers in the twist about this unnecessarily. Rwanda has, as a country, pursued a policy with lots of countries, um, such as Denmark, uh, or indeed international organizations such as the United Nations Refugee Agency, you know, not known as a haven of anti-refugee people, right? And Rwanda um, was used as a place to help deal with asylum seekers from Libya, with the UN, and indeed from Denmark. Um, all we are doing is as part of the many measures we're trying to do to deal with the boat problem of hundreds, indeed, I don't know if it's thousands or hundreds, lots and lots of people crossing the Mediterranean in these sort of dinghies, um, paying lots of money to these evil people smugglers. This is a growing problem. Now, there are lots of ways of dealing with it. I'm not saying this is the only way of dealing with it, but it does offer a deterrent to people who have already arrived at a safe country. This is, these are people who are passing through safe countries, such as, I don't know, Belgium, France. These are not places that are war-torn or, or, or unsafe. They are passing through those countries in order to come to the UK. So in that environment, I think it's very reasonable, indeed incumbent on any government to say, look, asylum is about being fleeing from war or extreme persecution. You have already successfully fled from war or extreme persecution if you're in France or Belgium, right? Or Spain or various other places, but you know, in, in the channel or in the, the Netherlands. You've, you, 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 you've already fled, fled rather. So, when people in that position are then trying to come to the UK and paying people smugglers, I think it's a reasonable assumption to go, people are actually, a large number of people may well be abusing the asylum laws because we know they've already reached a safe place. Now, there is nothing wrong with wanting to come into Britain uh, for economic reasons. My parents, my father, my mum was born in England and grew up here, but my, my father came to this country as a doctor. 
you know, for economic reasons, ultimately, and to build a better life. But if you're doing that, you've got to do it the right way and apply through the right schemes, legal routes that literally hundreds of thousands of people do every year. And that is the right way to do it. You've got to have legal routes for people to come economically, but also have, have the ability for people to claim asylum, which we do, and which we're maintaining, we're very committed to doing. Um, it's worth mentioning that both the Home Secretary and the Justice Secretary, grandparents, in the case of the Justice Secretary, and parents, in the case of the Home Secretary, came to this country from somewhere else. You know, these are people who I know personally well, both of them. These are not people who, who, who don't, you know, these are people who, who understand the willingness of people to flee persecution and war, but what they don't want is people to come through safe places, pretend that they're fleeing persecution and war because they've come through a safe place, but yet they still want to come to the UK. That looks like a choice that you're making for economic reasons, which is very reasonable, but then they've got to apply in a legal way. And so as part of the ways in which we're combating this, I think that, um, you know, processing people reminder is, is, is one of the many things that we can do. Is it unfair to coat those people, as you've described there, as economic migrants, though? Because looking at the government's... Some are. I'm not saying all are. But the, the description that you're giving there is that uh, it is a problem because the majority are, whereas... The... I don't use the word majority. What I'm saying is, if you are coming through a safe country, you've got to ask the question, if you're fleeing war or persecution, you have already done that. So why then go to the UK, unless it is for a broader reason, which, as I'm saying, I think is very legitimate for people to do, but they've got to do it the right legal way, not do it, coming over the boat, coming over on, on boats in the channel, having unfortunately have to pay thousands of pounds for these evil people smugglers who are the only people who seem to benefit from this. One of the questions that people will ask then is why is there no safe and legal centres offshore for people to be processed? Uh, the short answer to that is I don't know. What I do know is that France has been, how do I put it this way, not as helpful as they could have been around the, the dealing with this. And look, that's up to them. They're a sovereign country. It's up to them as to how helpful or not they will be. Uh, and it's a shame. And I think, you know, if I'm very honest, I think one of our priorities as a government has to be building better relations with France. I think it will help us deal with lots of challenges. This is just one. Um, and I guess in terms of then the... We'll, we'll finish up with the discussion point about Rwanda itself, because some of the issues that people have sent in to us are questions about the, the feasibility of it in terms of cost, but also actually the the country itself and it, its its record on some issues like LGBT people, or as the US State Department has pointed out, there are significant human rights issues. I mean, do we want to be sending people to this country where they may incur harm? Look, I'm not an expert on Rwanda, but I know the UN knows quite a lot about Rwanda. And if it's okay for the UN Refugee Agency, then I think it should be okay for them. So turn our attention to something that has come under serious discussion this month. There's been revelations of 56 MPs are on a list of those accused of sexual misconduct. Do you believe that there is a culture of misogyny in Parliament, Bim? No, I don't. Um, no, I don't believe that at all. I think that, you know, there are unique pressures in Parliament that are not common to any other workplaces. Uh, but ultimately, it's a great place to be. 
it is a place where we need to act better to make sure that where there are bad things and complaints are rightly made that we, we deal with them properly. And I think the chief whip is doing that in the conservative part, but I don't, I can't speak for the other, the, the Labour part. Um, but, you know, I think that a lot of this, to be honest, is, is you, know, you pick one person doing a particular thing and then the thousands of people on the parliamentary state are now condemned as all doing it and I just think it's ridiculous. There are, there are always a few people who do the wrong thing and act badly and we act to, to discipline them. And as I say, the processes need to be better and improved, but that is not, it is no more a place of misogyny than it is a place where everybody fiddles their toes. You know, it's just, it's really, really, really important that we don't allow the media to blacken the good work and the important work that politicians and politics does. Do you think that politics needs to be a safer place for women, though? Do you think that there needs to be changes? Well, I think that there are definitely behaviours that in other workplaces you probably didn't see, you, you wouldn't see as much nowadays as you did, say, 10 or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But part of that is because Parliament, you know, Westminster isn't a workplace in the conventional sense. It's a place where the public comes. You know, it's a, it's a sort of museum. It's the place where the public comes. It's a place where people have their restaurants and uh, bars and uh, there are parties and events. That isn't the sort of thing you find in a normal office, right? So it's, and, and the nature of politics isn't the sort of place where everybody just has a desk and sits down and computer and works. Politics in and of itself is a people business. So it's never going to be the same as another workplace, but I do think that having a culture whereby certain things are just not acceptable, I think it's clearer divisions in the building between work areas and non-work areas probably would be helpful. Uh, it's very difficult in a very old building, uh, but I think you could definitely do that. Um, and I also think that for women, there just needs to be a place where people know that if they have a complaint, it's taken seriously. And I think too many women, from what I'm told from, from them and others, too many don't feel that. And unless you have that sorted, then you won't really deal with the bad apples. Uh, so we've got to get rid of them and throw them away. In April, you informed that you had been sanctioned by the Russian government. For... I have. I've been sanctioned. <laughs> I've finally been sanctioned by a government. It's never happened to me before. Hopefully it won't become a sort of common occurrence everywhere. <laughs> well, on this, you said, I regard being sanctioned by the criminal gang masquerading as the Russian government to be a badge of pride. I mean, how did you find out about this? The Speaker's office told me. Um, but I mean, you know, I, actually, I thought that was actually, I came up with that line just really completely off the cuff. Off the cuff. It actually doesn't sound too bad, actually. I'm quite proud of that one. Very <laughs> nasty. Um, uh, look, there are, I was one of 287 MPs who were sanctioned. They apparently, this is all that we've been told, so I don't know if this is true because I don't speak Russian. I haven't watched the Russian Duma's proceedings, but I'm told they did that to the MPs who've had sort of significant, who they felt was significant impact on Russia, um, attacking Russia uh, in relation to the war in Ukraine. Um, and I'm very proud that I'm included in that, in that group. Um, I wonder whether, I don't know whether Bambos, Sharon Ambos or, or Daisy Cooper were included, but I, I was. Bambos is, and so it's an interesting time and we will follow the developments further. But 
You've also been re-elected as chair of the all-party parliamentary group for financial markets and services. Uh, what do you think has been your most proud work at the APPG so far? And what are your goals for the year ahead? Uh, the dreaded question to a politician about their achievements, which, which they all start to go silent. So um, <laughs> what, we, what we've, what, what I'd say that the, the two things that I'm proud of doing, the first is being a the first port of call for the treasury when it comes to parliamentary mood and opinion on anything to do with financial services i am that first port of call that was not the case before me um and that's come through through being known to be somebody who knows what they're talking about on this stuff the second is actually the work we did over covid you know i worked very closely with the government over covid to um, ensure that we got the C-bills packaged to companies to make sure the bounce-back loans got to companies fast, which were all delivered by the, by the financial services sector itself. It wasn't done by the Treasury, it was done through the banks mostly. And working with them very closely on that was also a big achievement. And going forward, we're going to do much more on how financial services can help leveling up. And we've discussed previously your other job, uh affecting young people will will that kind of link with that role yeah as vice chair of the conservative party yeah um i'm actually trying to fuse them a bit together on some of the trips i'm doing over the country i'm I'm going all over the country um in in the coming upcoming weeks uh in my role as vice chair because i get invited a lot to speak in different parts of the country to different groups of people and um you know, I'm trying to, when I go somewhere, do a visit also to the financial services or professional services business. So, yeah, I'm trying to fuse them. Uh, last month, you explained that the government has set out measures to help deter fly tipping, including new plans to ensure DIY household waste is accepted for free at ho- household waste recycling centres. Do you believe that this has already had an effect in your area? Some of it has, but we've still got a long way to go. Uh, in fact, I was talking to the leader of Parts County Council about this a couple of weeks ago. So, you know, there are a lot of people focused on it. And finally, before we get to the community questions, last time we talked, and this is something you've actually talked quite a lot about on Radio Verulam, road safety. Are you happy that there has been some progress made or are you disappointed that the plans from the council have not been implemented fast enough yet? Um, it's never fast enough on road safety. Um because there are a lot of ridiculous rules that the councils have to abide by, to be fair to them. But it all seems to move incredibly slowly. And so when I'm in charge of everything, this is one of the many things I'll have to change. (laughs) Um, Let's move it to the community questions. Uh, Someone has sent in a question saying, Harperden has the 10th highest air pollution in Hertfordshire, and Hitchin has been described as having significant levels according to the WHO data. What is going to be done to rectify this, Bim? Well, I'd have to look at that. I haven't seen it. Um, the person who asked it, please send it through. A big part of having high air pollution levels is just having lots of cars in a close proximity, which happens in a town. Happening is a town of about 33,000 people. So if you're 10, you know, that doesn't strike me as out of whack bearing in mind the size of the town. But, you know, I may be wrong. Uh, I think Luton Airport also has an impact on that. 
And so again, combating the expansion of that, which is something I'm incredibly keen on, which I won't bore everybody with because I've bored them many times. <laughs> well, Andrea has turned attention to the vegan fair. She said it was a great display of a more eco-friendly and animal-friendly way of living. Bim, would you encourage people to have a more vegan lifestyle? And are you proud that Harperton and Hitchin are leaders in producing great vegan produce? So I'm now going to confess that I didn't know we were leaders in, 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 um, in this produce. And I'd love um, for the person who sent in that question to get in touch and explain, you know, and, and, and talk me through that. So I didn't know that. The broader point on veganism, now I'm, I'm you know, again, I'm, 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 I'm young, but I, I think it's important to sometimes not be invoked. I don't believe that we should be forcing everybody um, to, to, to not eat any animal products. Um, I don't believe if people choose to do that, then that's fine. Um, but I think it's important for our food security, it's important for our health, it's important for our country, important for our farming sector, that people know that it's very, very good outcome to eat good British meat. And good British meat is important. And, uh, and, and people should feel perfectly sort of good about doing that. I, I, I wouldn't want me, I don't want, I wouldn't want anybody to think that it's somehow bad for eating meat. You know, there is um, there are some people who feel that way, and that's fine. And that's what living in a free society is about. But I don't think that necessarily as a society we need to be telling everybody, you know, you've got to be vegan. Let's move it on to Carl's question. He said, I saw you visited the Kimpton art show. Are you much of an artist yourself, like one of your political heroes, Winston Churchill? No, completely hopeless. Completely and utterly hopeless. But art makes a home look not bare. So you've got to have art. But I don't have an eye for it particularly. Um, as anybody who's been who's ever seen any of my art purchases will know. <laughs> well, I mean, we've uh, previously chatted. Obviously, this is on radio, but I get to see you through Zoom, um, and I've seen that you have some nice pieces of art in your own home. I mean, do you have a favourite piece of art that you own? I don't really. I have in my study at home a series of photos, historical photos, and um, my favourite one is a picture from the 1960 US presidential campaign of John F. Kennedy giving us just leaving a speech with his brother on one side and Lyndon Johnson, the vice president, on the other side. And basically, Lyndon Johnson hated both Jack and his brother Bobby. And the feeling was pretty mutual, definitely from Bobby. And it's a really interesting photo taken at a very, you know, they really capture a particular point that makes it pretty interesting. Let's move it to, uh, you've already mentioned it once today, but the Luton Airport expansion. John has said, when will we hear about the outcome of this? I've already signed the petition, but I'm very worried. Do not fear. Do not fear. Um, this is this is going to take a long time. Uh, this is not something that happens quickly. And a coalition of people against it is broad and deep. And we are very, very committed to stopping Luton um, Airport expansion. Um, so, you know, we're not there yet and the work will continue. Michael has asked, how will this 30 million in funding for Hertfordshire help level up bus services? 
it would really depend on how the county council uses the money. But if he wants to write into me, I can dig in, dig into that, and I should probably do that anyway. Um, now, Scott has asked on an issue not to do with yourself, but with Rishi Sunak. He said last month on the issues around Rishi Sunak um, and the arrangements of his tax affairs, you said, Bim, that it's worth remembering throughout that all laws have been followed. But why do our laws allow this? He also asked a follow up question. I'm also genuinely interested in knowing where the line is drawn when you say that let's not subject this family to more political attacks. Surely political attacks are fair game as long as they're conducted using facts, not being abusive or threatening, which I do not believe any of the news outlets have done in comparison to somebody like Angela Rayner. The Labour activist question. Okay, so <laughs> if, um, uh, the reason why you have non-domicile status is because we want there to be, we want Britain to be a place where people who earn their money elsewhere, who are paying taxes in other countries, such as the United States, India, Australia, wherever, can still live in Britain and live here permanently or for semi-permanent work. Because if we were to say that you had to pay tax on both in both Britain and in say India, how many people would come from India to Britain in order to move this store to do so? And in order to get this status, by the way, they pay a flat, a flat fee of about £30,000 a year. And so it's not for free. They're actually paying a fee to our exchequer anyway to do this. But all non-domicile status does is it says you do not have to pay tax twice on money that you earn somewhere else where you're paying tax on it there. Any money that you earn in the UK, so for example, if you're a non-dom but you, um, you have shares in a British business, then you would pay your tax on those shares in a British business if you sold them, for example, or on your dividends in Britain. But if you had an Australian business that's headquartered in Sydney, that's an entirely domestic business, you're paying tax in Australia. Why should you also pay tax in the UK? I just, I think it's sort of frustrating that people haven't sought to inform themselves properly on how these things work. Um, and if they did, they'd realise that that is a perfectly reasonable a thing that, by the way, most countries have. Most countries have a version. Um, and I, I guess on the issue of, um, let me just look at their name, uh, Scott's question about the fair game, as he said, of political attacks. Oh, where is that line drawn there, Bim? I was making, again, I wish Scott actually read what I said properly. I was making a point that he shouldn't subject, people shouldn't subject his family to political attacks. I never think that is fair game. And it tells you a lot about certain people's attitude to politics that they think it is fair game to attack people's family. So either Scott thinks that it's perfectly all right to attack people's family at all times, and I don't think, and I, and I, if he thinks that, I completely disagree. That's not how I think anybody should do politics. Or he didn't fully appreciate what I was saying, and he thought I was saying the Chancellor shouldn't be subjected to political attack. I was talking about the Chancellor's family. 
The final question comes from Anne, and she said, there's recent announcements of more 20 mile per hour zones in Hertfordshire. Will there be any brought to our area, BIM? Um, I don't know. It's a county council question, but I'm, if you were to write to me, I'm very happy to share that out. Uh, would you be for that as well, BIM? Because they do increase road safety. They do. I think it's important where they are. There's no point being a 20 mile hour zone on, you know, the M1, right? So the question is, where do you put them? And as long as they're put in the right places where you have lots of people walking or have narrow streets or whatever, then that's perfectly sensible. Yes. Well, thank you for your time today. Bim, no problem. As always, and you'll be back again next month. So people do send in your questions. But for now, we wish you uh, the best of luck and the best of health.